For more than a year now, we've talked periodically on the show about Florida's and Texas's social media laws. We started in March 2021 before either law was even passed. The two laws are Florida's SB 7072 and Texas's HB 20. They were both promptly subject to legal challenge. Those lawsuits have moved through the courts comparatively quickly. And as we'll be discussing today, it appears that the two cases are on a crash course to the Supreme Court and that they will someday soon be the subject of a landmark high court ruling on free speech and the internet. So briefly, how did we get here? Florida's SB 7072 and Texas's HB 20 each take aim at supposed big tech censorship, quote unquote. Accordingly, each contains a thicket of rules intended to block or discourage the largest social media platforms from moderating content. SB 7072 says, for instance, that a platform may not remove any post by a, quote, journalistic enterprise, a term defined so as to cover most any popular website. Florida's law also requires platforms to moderate content in a, quote, consistent manner. Good luck figuring out what that means. HB 20, for its part, bars a platform from moderating content on the basis of viewpoint. It thus would seem to place terrorist propaganda on a par with news stories about terrorism, mass shooter manifestos on a par with appeals for racial harmony or gun control, pro-anorexia content on a par with its opposite, and so on. Allow the latter, and under HB 20, you must allow the former. Each law was challenged in court and each was blocked. Quote, the state has asserted it is on the side of the First Amendment, wrote the trial judge in the Florida case. But the assertion is wholly at odds with accepted constitutional principles. Quote, social media platforms have a First Amendment right to moderate content disseminated on their platforms, explained the trial judge in the Texas case. And yet, quote, HB 20 prohibits virtually all content moderation, unquote. The First Amendment violations were clear. Both trial court rulings were appealed. Florida's case headed to the conservative-leaning 11th Circuit. Texas's went to the conservative-leaning 5th Circuit. Not only that, but each appeal drew a panel of three Republican-appointed judges. So it sounds like the appeals were probably headed towards similar outcomes, right? But of course, you never know in litigation. And as we'll see, that was certainly true here. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. I'm delighted to be joined today once again by Tech Freedom's own Ari Cohn. His title here is Free Speech Council. So no surprise, he's really into this stuff and he's going to break it all down with me today. Ari, welcome. Always good to be here. So we are recording this on a Tuesday morning, uh, June 28th. We will be shooting to get this out as quickly as possible because as we will be discussing, the Fifth Circuit did some pretty wild stuff and still has not issued its opinion. So the law of superstition dictates that they're going to issue it uh, while we are talking or late this afternoon and blow our whole episode apart. I don't know what we'll do if that happens. Uh, maybe I will just tack on something at the beginning, but uh, 
hopefully, uh, again, under the law of superstition, by having drawn this much attention to it, I've warded off the bad juju and uh, it will not come out until after this recording is, is published. Or you've invited it further. Uh, the law of superstition is funny that way. <laughs> so we'll get to the Fifth Circuit. Let's start with the Eleventh Circuit. So I've, I've really set the table here, uh, I hope. SB 7072 it gets uh, preliminarily enjoined in the Northern District of Florida. That's the trial court. We go up to the Eleventh Circuit. We do have that decision. Uh, Judge Kevin Newsom, a Trump appointee, writing for a unanimous panel. Um, Ari, do you care to set us up uh, with what Judge Newsom did? Uh, so Judge Newsom uh, really kind of blew apart every single part of, of Florida's argument. And uh, I'm going to throw something in here on my own. Um, but it, it's funny when you looked at how Florida tried to posture this case, uh, they really wanted to make this about Section 230. Uh, they tried so hard. Uh, to get the court to ignore the First Amendment issues. Um, and Net Choice did a good job of really placing this squarely in, in the First Amendment realm. Uh, but right up at top of the argument, uh, in footnote number four, one that really probably hasn't gotten a ton of attention, Judge Newsom uh, drops, drops this footnote about uh, how, yes, constitutional avoidance, the principle that judges should avoid um, deciding far-reaching constitutional questions uh, when there are other grounds, uh, and then said, but it doesn't matter in this case uh, because Section 230 preemption claims are also constitutional in nature. And just from that point on, I knew this was kind of going to be a doozy of, a, of an opinion because uh, just right at the outset, he destroyed their, their framing and their arguments were surely not too far uh, after that. Um, so I, I just found that interesting and, and nobody really is talking about that, but uh, it's a nice little tidbit. Uh, but, uh, you know, moving on to the substance, uh, Judge Newsom just goes through writing for this for the panel. Um, and it was a unanimous panel, too. Uh, surprisingly, we kind of expected you kind of expected some dueling opinions in the case um, and uh, just flat out goes right into exactly why content moderation and platforms editorial judgments are in fact expressive uh, and are uh, protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and he, he did it very methodically. Um, he, he went through the cases that Florida cited, he went through the cases Net Choice cited, um, and then just made a no bones about it uh, statement and uh, saying, you know, that there really isn't a question that what a platform decides to publish or remove uh, on its own platform is uh, expressive in nature. And there were a bunch of different uh, you know, reasons uh, why he said this. And uh, he, he went to the fact that the Florida legislators, Ron DeSantis, all the people backing this bill basically said, this is a, uh, a way to fight back against left-wing bias on the platforms. Uh, and the judge seemed kind of uh, incredulous that you could argue this on one hand, and then on the other hand, say that these decisions are not remotely expressive. Uh, they don't, those two arguments don't mesh. If there's 
if you're doing this to counter a point of view from the platform, then quite obviously uh, it is uh, expressive. And Judge Usman said that when he wrote that observers perceive bias in platforms content moderation decisions is compelling evidence that those decisions are indeed expressive. Yeah, so Judge Newsom's opinion um, did a great job in, in my view of interweaving certain points that uh, really should be obvious to anyone who follows these things, along with um, hitting sort of delicate areas in a way that was nuanced, uh, kind of clever, working stuff in that maybe uh, might've been tricky. So one good example is you mentioned that he in a footnote brushes aside the section 230 arguments and he really was in a tricky spot where, um, the Section 230 uh, preemption may not have wiped out uh, the whole law. It would have ended up being this trench warfare where he really would have had to do this analysis um, provision by provision. The law has a lot more than just the journalistic enterprises provision I mentioned at the outset. Uh, right. It requires detailed explanations by the platforms for their social media uh, content moderation decisions. You know, does Section 230 preempt that? Oh, that's kind of tricky because that's the platform's speech directly. Um, issues about uh, having to not change their rules uh, more than every 30 days. So that was potentially a morass. And I saw, I did actually, you said nobody mentioned, I could have sworn I saw someone um, maybe in the Twitter sphere noting that uh, Judge Newsom had kind of played a bit fast and loose with constitutional avoidance in that footnote, because it's true that preemption is the supremacy clause, but it wasn't going to require him to interpret the Constitution in some way. Preemption, although, although it's grounded in the supremacy clause, um, and therefore is kind of constitutional. Um, I, I think I saw it noted somewhere that Judge Newsom was kind of glossing over the fact that it wouldn't require him to actually um, make a constitutional ruling. Well, in so, any event, kind of a smart move because you're not going to get reversed on the grounds that you uh, improperly applied the, the constitutional avoidance. This principle. is very true. The other one I was going to mention, so he's got these legislators saying, oh, big tech censorship and um, liberal bias toward conservatives. And as he ruled later, he, he wasn't going to use those statements as a independent basis to uh, uphold the preliminary injunction, which is probably a shrewd move. I'm not sure it's a good idea in this case to dive into the legislative history. You do that in this case, and there's sort of a Pandora's box about when you would do that in other cases. And yet he still managed to work into the decision those statements. And he did it, I thought, in a clever way by um, working it into the section on are these platforms engaged in expressive content? Are they exercising editorial judgment when they engage in content moderation? So those were sort of the clever and, and uh, nuanced things that Newsom did. But then, as I mentioned at the outset of what is now my long rant here, um, those are interwoven with very straightforward bread and butter announcements. Like uh, he said that social media companies, even the biggest ones are private actors whose rights are uh, protected by the first amendment. He noted that SB 7072's restrictions 
uh, as I mentioned at the outset, the consistency provision, the journalistic enterprise protection. There was also a protection for political candidates, making it so that statements by or even about them basically couldn't be subjected to content moderation. Um, those unconstitutionally burden the platform's protected exercises of editorial judgment. Um, he said that trying to basically boost right-wing speech on social media is not a legitimate governmental interest. Uh, it was all quite um, logical and straightforward and easy to follow and digestible. You mentioned that uh, I was concerned with this panel. The other judges, um, you know, there's a rock rib conservative, Ed Carnes, who's a brilliant judge, was on the panel. Um, and I did have a little bit of concern that we'd see internally in the 11th Circuit decision, the kind of split that we'll get to in a moment that we see between the 11th and the 5th. Um, I do have to wonder if Judge Newsom maybe just did such a good job with this opinion that he brought everybody on board and, and was able to make a unanimous uh, ruling because his opinion's just really good, at least the content moderation parts. Yeah, and there are a couple of things that I that I really just appreciated about this opinion. Uh, it's probably like not the you know the the meat of it, but the, the little kind of grace notes um, that he puts in, as you said, kind of weaving some of the the things together in a clever way. Um, you know, I, I really liked when he was talking about because Florida had argued that. Um, you know, the, well, nobody would presume that the speech that platforms allow to stay up are the speech of the platform itself. So there's no likelihood of, of confusion. And Judge Newsom wrote, you know, first of all, that's just really not, that's not a First Amendment requirement. You don't need to have somebody confuse your speech or somebody else's speech to have a First Amendment right to not publish it. Uh, but then, he, and not even having to do this, um, went and, and noted that that argument, as he said, uh, boomerangs back around itself. Uh, and this is a point that, that I've made several times when talking about this case. Uh, and I'll just quote him here because it's, it's elegant. If a platform announces a community standard prohibiting, say, hate speech, but is then barred from removing or even disclaiming posts con containing what it perceives to be hate speech, there's a real risk that a viewer might erroneously conclude that the platform doesn't consider those posts to constitute hate speech. Uh, and that's kind of the, the way this all kind of, the, the snake eating its own tail in, uh, in Florida's argument is, is that they keep making these arguments that, that really just undercut themselves. Um, and it, it, the other one that I noted was the... Um, you know, Florida had argued that uh, uh, you need a, like a coherent message for these, uh, you know, decisions to be protected by the First Amendment. And, you know, social media platforms don't have uh, a coherent message. Uh, and Judge Newsom kind of shredded that one, too, and, and said, and this is something, a point that you made in, in our brief, um, that the message, the coherent message is that this is a place for certain speech and not other kinds of speech. And, and Judge Newsom basically uh, wrote exactly what you, you argued in our brief uh, directly in the opinion, uh, which was great to see. Huh. Um, I don't know if I, I caught that, but I'll take it. Sure. Uh, you know, I had a law professor say, you know, your goal as the lawyer is to uh, be the, the person making the marionette dance. And I always thought that, and then I clerked for a judge and discovered it's Judges are not potted plants like that. They they are independent-minded folks, um, but but we try. 
he it's well, uh oh, sorry i was just gonna say it's it's about where like footnote 16 is uh where uh you know he, it's actually you know he starts off talking about cable operators he says of course to the extent one might say that a cable operator is pursuing say a theme of non-obscenity uh, the very same thing, sort of thing could be said of social media platforms. Uh, see Facebook community standards explaining that Facebook prohibits many categories of content as it seeks to foster the values of authenticity, safety, privacy, and dignity, uh, which is very close to what we wrote. Oh, right. Sure. So well, well, we noted that, um, you know, the community standards, one thing that has been bandied about and... Um, Maybe there were some statements by the platforms early on in their history that caused some confusion here where uh, they like to say, you know, we're the modern public square or whatever. We're here for everyone to speak. And the free speech wing of the free speech party. Yeah, that's a good one there. And their community standards never really matched that. Um, They've always if you dig back and look at the history, reserve the right to um, moderate content and keep, I mean, uh, granted, you go back in early interviews of some of the Facebook people, they say that their content moderation wasn't a whole lot more than, does it make us feel icky? But they've always reserved mm-hmm. the right in their, in their you know, uh, terms of service to block the quote unquote icky material, be it yep. beheading videos, or uh, the pro-anorexia content or whatever. Um, what I was impressed by, so I, I mentioned that Newsom was um, very good on the straightforward points, very logically setting forth that platforms exercise editorial judgment and therefore have you know full First Amendment protections for what they do. And what you had kind of shifted into was the fact that he also was very good at knocking down Florida's arguments and a lot of the um, a lot of the canards that we've seen in support of forcing the platforms to carry lawful but awful speech. And let's be clear, that's what these laws try to do. They they on their surface they say that they're trying to create. Uh, um, political fairness or uphold right-wing speech, but the way they're written, they actually allow all, they're much, much broader than that. At any rate, um, you mentioned a couple of them, some others I would mention. So this public square thing, and as I alluded to just a moment ago, you had some loose statements by uh, people who high up at these platforms through the years using the term public square, but let's be clear, it has a sort of loose colloquial sense, but then it also has a technical legal sense um, where once you become the equivalent of, you know, a company town, you have to provide First Amendment protections to those who speak on your property rather than you being the one who's subject to First Amendment protections and how you edit. And it's, you know, so basically state action doctrine. And um, well, some people might live in the company town that is Twitter, uh, but most people don't have tents set up. Yeah, well, uh, there are some squatters. He was very clear that we're not anywhere near that in this case, that the platforms are far more akin to a newspaper or a parade. So there are key Supreme Court decisions that give at a, you know, full, fulsome editorial rights to those kinds of entities and platforms are like that. Uh, one of the key decisions involving a parade made clear that you can put together multifarious voices. You don't have to have, you know, so Facebook and Twitter may just want to have uh 
a community where people can speak and it's not obscenity or harassment or whatever, and that's enough to be subject to protection. You don't have to have some, you know, we are the red, the pro Red Sox website or something, that level of coherent message. Um, he was really good about the, I don't get this one, Florida and Texas, Texas has really pressed this one hard, the notion that timing should matter, the notion that um, platforms tend to have pretty loose AI-centric moderation on the front end, but then if material gets reported, they will do human review and may take stuff down on the back end, and Texas is, is particularly has really tried to make hay out of that. I've never understood it. Um, the example that our um, dear leader Baron Soka mentions, it's like, you know, talk radio, the notion that you couldn't cut off a talk, you know, somebody who gets on the air and starts doing something completely unexpected, you can't cut them off, you know, post talk. That's, uh, I've never understood the timing thing and Newsom smacked that down strongly. Um, and then finally, and dear to us at Tech Freedom, uh, the common carriage issue. Uh, Judge Newsom was very good on that. He uh, already mentioned that we filed a brief, an amicus brief in this appeal. We focused on the common carriage issue. Um, and he mentioned our brief. I'll just plug us in a footnote. Um, but he said it's not clear what the common carriage theory even really adds here. Um, the platforms are not in the nature of thing, uh, he said, quote, not in the nature of things, common carriers. Uh, after all, they require users as preconditions of access to accept terms of service. So they're not just open to all comers. Um, it's not like a common carrier oil pipeline that just takes all oil producers at a common rate. It's nothing like that. Uh, he mentioned Reno versus ACLU, a key Supreme Court decision from 1997 that said websites are subject to conventional First Amendment standards. He also mentioned Section 230. You pointed out that he resisted using, you know, ruling on Section 230 preemption. But here he cited it to note that uh, Congress clearly doesn't think these platforms are common carriers. Uh, Section 230 encourages editing by uh, by these websites and editing in its nature is not common carriage. And then he once he was done doing all of that and making it clear that these um, platforms are not like in essence common carriers, he moved on to point out that the states cannot just label them common carriers. And this is another one that the states, uh, Florida and Texas have been um, pushing really hard that just doesn't make a lot of sense. The notion that if you don't like what a platform is saying or how it's moderating content, well, you can just pronounce it a common carrier. Uh, that is baffling because it's the equivalent of saying that you don't like what the Wall Street Journal publishes. Well, let's just label it a common carrier. Boom, no First Amendment rights. Uh, yeah, so the way he did it was, it was actually so helpful, uh, the way he framed it. Um, and he said, listen, if you are saying you can just label them a common carrier, I'm going to be doing the same exact First Amendment analysis because it would in, infringe on the same exact rights. And just calling it a common carrier legislation doesn't make it immune to First Amendment analysis. So we're going to be doing this no matter what you call it. Yeah. So Judge Newsom, you know, he has a very direct, uh, I might almost say folksy writing style and uh, I think it put him in really good stead in this opinion because he took some arguments that 
some pretty smart lawyers were trying to um, make sound impressive. And he deflated them by basically just calling them out in very simple terms. And I thought maybe the apotheosis of that was in him uh, explaining that you can't just label something a common carrier and take away its First Amendment rights. And once you put it that simply and directly the way Judge Newsom did, it really is pretty compelling, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, the footnote that he uh, cited us, I'll just note briefly, um, we had a section at the very end of our brief talking about how even if the platforms are common carriers, if you dig back into the history of common carriage, common carriers have always been able to kick off patrons that are rude or disruptive or make a scene or are drunk or whatever. Uh, that has always been something. I mean, if you if you dig back deeply enough in the common carriage, I mean, we're not talking about speech and expression. We're talking about giving lodging to someone or carrying goods. And so as a result, there's never uh, trying to take the old wine of common carriage and putting in this new skin where it works on an editorial product. It makes no sense. It's an utter non sequitur. Uh, and he pointed that he adopted that in the footnote uh, as part of his explanation of, I don't really understand what this adds here. Um, so I was very pleased with that. And it's funny that he would say that, um, you know, because that was basically all they argued. Uh, that was, the, that's, that was the, the crux of their argument. And he got to that later uh, when he kind of said, look, he basically said, bro, you didn't even try and argue about you know, that this would survive any level of constitutional scrutiny. Yes. And um, I will note, because if you know Judge Newsom's writing style, you might be wondering, did he really say, bro, you didn't? And he didn't write that. But uh, if, if Judge Newsom one day puts that in an opinion, I guess I won't be shocked. Well, OK, enough about the 11th Circuit. Great opinion in all the aspects, aspects we've discussed. I will put a pin in the fact that um, not such a great opinion when it came to disclosure requirements in the Florida law. Um, I think we're going to move on and just leave that there. If anyone who's interested in that topic, there's an episode of this podcast I did with the great professor Eric Goldman that you should check out. Um, episode those, 315, uh... Social Media Transparency as First Amendment Violation. Go check that out. Um, we will probably be revisiting that issue that uh, he upheld some, but not all of the disclosure requirements. And that's really unfortunate. But uh, on, on this episode, at least, we come to praise Judge Newsom and not to bury him. So moving and, on. And those, to, please. Those, uh, those provisions are going to be the subject or are already the subject of a cert petition. So we may have yet more reason to discuss them. Definitely. Uh, but at the moment, I would like uh, to move on to the Fifth Circuit and what happened there. Um, so <laughs> as I mentioned, we kind of don't know what happened there. Yeah. So as I mentioned at the outset, uh, we had six Republican appointed judges. And as I always say in the podcast, at some point I need to just bite the bullet and admit that I give some valence to the political appointment, uh, the party appointment of judges. Cause every time it comes up on this show, I always say, I don't like doing this. It's very simplistic and reductive. And yet I keep doing it. So um, very interesting divide here where you could get uh, six Republican appointed judges who go in such polar opposite directions. Um, the Fifth Circuit did not see things the way the Eleventh Circuit did, to put it mildly. Uh, Texas appeals, HB 20, 
goes to the Fifth Circuit. We get a motion to stay by Texas. So what does that mean? Texas wants during the pendency of the appeal for its law to go into effect, basically undo the preliminary injunction by the trial judge. And that motion is floating around. Fifth Circuit says they'll carry it with the case. What that means is they're going to finish the briefing and have oral argument and then decide what to do with that motion. We head into oral argument and I'll circle back to what happened at the oral argument. The oral argument is just bonkers. Like these uh, two of the judges on the panel uh, just, I think it's fair to say, showed utter disdain for the platform's arguments. Um, And then I forget if it was the next day or 48 hours later, I think it might've been two days later, they issue a one sentence order granting that motion to stay and letting HB 20 go into effect, which um, I got to say is kind of mind blowing. I mean, you're talking about something that is fundamentally going to affect uh, how these platforms operate and basically make the products explode. also going to upend all kinds of First Amendment law, and you do it in a one-sentence order. It was such a just um, F-U, basically. I mean, I excuse my language. Platforms go up to the Supreme Court. They seek an emergency application. They apply for emergency relief, I should say. Um, the Supreme Court grants it. So they grant the application to undo the motion to stay that had blocked the preliminary injunction that had blocked HB 20. You got it? Um, So that's a long-winded way of saying getting the law blocked again. And the vote is five to four. And again, things are weird and wacky. Uh, You've got three Trump appointees on the Supreme Court at this point, Justices Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett and Kavanaugh both vote to uh, re-block HB 20. Justice Gorsuch joins a dissent written by Justice Samuel Alito, uh, saying that they would not grant emergency relief. Also joining that opinion, uh, no surprise, is Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, And then you have Justice Kagan was the fourth uh, person who declined to uh, re-block the law. She did not issue an opinion. Uh, So that's a lot of table setting. Ari, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, bonkers is pretty much the best way to describe it. We have no idea what the Fifth Circuit is is thinking uh, besides what we can glean from the oral arguments during which it's not even clear that they understand how the internet works. I mean, it's, and and just the thing that keeps replaying in my head over and over and over again from the Fifth Circuit oral argument is when Judge Oldham asked, so if Twitter decided tomorrow that it wanted to not publish any LGBT speech, uh, she asked the platforms, do you think they could do that? And yeah. Yes, was the answer. Uh, And Judge Oldham replied incredulously, something to the effect of, I find that astonishing. That Uh, is extraordinary, he said. Yeah, which just blows my mind uh, because I am not sure. You know, does he think it's extraordinary that Fox News uh, is deciding that it doesn't want to run any pro Biden segments? Is that extraordinary? I I just, it's, 
I don't, it's extraordinary to me that he finds the concept that private publishers can decide what types of messages they want to publish or not extraordinary. Um, it's yeah, all so extraordinary. He led with that. So um, the two judges that we don't have the vote, there was three judges, Judge Andy Oldham, uh, Judge Edith Jones, and then Judge Southwick. It's, it's almost like 99.9% certain that it was Judges Jones and Oldham who voted to uh, grant the motion to stay with Judge Southwick dissenting. We know there was a dissenter. Um, Judge Oldham right out of the block said that, and I think um, I, I would make a distinction between, you mentioned it's not even clear they know how the internet works. I think that's particularly a comment directed at Judge Jones, who at one point claimed that Twitter is not a website, that it's an internet provider. And she got some well-deserved bad press for that comment. Maybe I'll circle back to some other things she said. But then Judge Oldham, you know, I think he, I think he was more informed. I think he was more ready to make, uh, to, to actually joust with the platforms. I think what happened with that comment is he is, um, this kind of begs the question, but, but his question and response makes sense. If you just take it as granted already, what is in fact the issue is, you know, that Twitter or Facebook are places of public accommodation. If you treat them as places of public accommodation, um, maybe his argument gets somewhere. The problem is it completely ignores Hurley, which is the Supreme Court decision I've alluded to a couple of times about parades, saying that parades, it was actually a Massachusetts uh, public accommodation law that people tried to apply to the uh, a, a privately run Boston St. Patrick's Day parade. They declined to let a LGBT group march in their parade. Um, and the Supreme Court said that a public accommodation law does not trump the parade's First Amendment right to decide who can and cannot join. Well, if that decision stands, and of course the Fifth Circuit can't overrule it, then Judge Oldham's uh, that is extraordinary kind of falls apart. Circling back to Judge Jones then, um, some of her, her comments, she, she really came out guns blazing. Um, at one point in the argument, she declared that the major platforms are de facto monopolies. She stated that just as a fact, which um, it's one thing to say that as a sort of colloquial matter. It's very surprising to hear a judge say that because monopoly has a legal uh, connotation to it and is normally a very fact-intensive investigation you have to under undergo to figure out if that term really applies. And she just bandied it about. Um, Judge Newsom in the 11th Circuit understood that that point is not uncontroversial. He said he said as much. Um, the fact that she called them de facto monopolies, plural, should be suggestive in that regard. Um, There's also the moment when just gratuitously, like out of nowhere, this was not a propos of anything. She just mentioned that the platforms have censored some very hotly disputed things, such as claims about the election of 2020, uh, which was an interesting thing to volunteer. Another thing she volunteered that was kind of wild, um, at one point, Scott Keller, uh, the platform's very able attorney, was noting that the platforms have to make a lot of content moderation decisions. You know, we're talking in the neighborhood of billions. And for some reason, Judge Jones saw fit to remark, uh, we learned at the Fifth Circuit Judicial Conference that the platforms are not too good about removing Russian bots. 
And that was another head scratcher. I'm not sure if uh, she thinks that that means that Texas can pass a law that effectively bars platforms from removing Russian bots. Um, it seemed to be just her making sure that we all know that she has great disdain for the platforms. Um, and then uh, finally, and then I'll, I'll stop kicking Judge Jones in the shins. Uh, she mentioned um, several times, basically made comments that made it clear that she, she this term content moderation, she very much resists that. There's this divide in her head where if it's content moderation that she doesn't like, it's censorship and that that is somehow to be distinguished from content moderation that is okay with her and that's content moderation and uh we'll see if she explains that divide because it's clearly uh it exists with her for reasons of her own but i don't know how she would make that distinction uh if actually forced to spell it out which ties again to the point of we got that one line order from the fifth circuit and um if we had an opinion from the Fifth Circuit, I don't think I would harp on what happened at oral argument at, at such length. But we don't know what they're thinking. We don't know what their reasoning is. Uh, it has now been, I think, a month, right, uh, since they issued that one-line order, and we still don't have an opinion. Several very prominent judges will tell you, you know, sometimes I change my mind as I write the opinion because that's how I figure out the, the strength of my position and whether it really holds water. Um, and they didn't do that. They had oral argument. They issued this one line opinion. And uh, here we are still waiting to discover what the Fifth Circuit's reasoning is here. Probably too much to ask to hope that in the process of writing, uh, they realized that their decision was in error. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably too much to ask. I mean, the fact that it's taking so long, sometimes it, it pops into my head this hope of, well, maybe there's going to be this shock thing where they issue an opinion agreeing with Judge Newsom. And uh, that's wishful thinking on my part. It really is. It's, it's like, yeah. that's not what's going to happen. And in particular, um, you know, I am thinking that's a possibility and it's preposterous. I mean, they probably look at Justice Alito's opinion in the Supreme Court with uh, Gorsuch and Thomas, and that totally bolsters their their confidence in their own opinion. Um, so to touch on that briefly, I mean, um, Professor Genevieve Lakier, I thought, put it really well that she said Justice Alito's opinion, you know, it's not making arguments. It's very brief. It's like six pages. It's kind of just planting a flag and making his allegiance known. I'm not saying it should have been some long thing. It was an emergency application, but that's a good shorthand to understand. I mean, the opinion says that the legal issues here are unclear and that is only true if you, as a judge like Alito, who's come out of the conservative legal movement, are willing to abandon wholesale several principles that the conservative legal movement itself was integral in confirming, building or confirming, you know, such as that corporations have First Amendment rights or that um, new media does not change your First Amendment rights. You know, the, the new modes of communication that come out should have the same First Amendment valence as old media. Um, or the fact that private actors are not uh, state actors. They don't have to give First Amendment protections to those who speak on their platforms. Um, 
you have to throw all of that out for this to be unclear. And it's so. Um, and it would be interesting if they threw out the state actor doctrine, because you kind of actually note, um, not not you, uh, but if you if you read the Supreme Court's decision in uh, Halleck in the um, the writing for the liberal justices, they drop a footnote basically wistfully thinking of the days where the state action doctrine was broader than it is now. And if we just saw like a just flagrant reversal of positions between the sets of justices, um, that would pretty much be in line with everything we've seen out of the Supreme Court lately, which is bananas. And we live in we live in strange times. The shorthand, as you know, that I use a lot is conservatives for prune yard. There's this Supreme Court case called prune yard in which a 1980 decision in which the Supreme Court basically curtailed the First Amendment rights of a privately owned mall to tell uh, people who want to pamphlet on its property uh, to get the heck off. And um, conservatives weirdly have picked up that decision and decided that it's awesome and that we should have this uh, sort of socialistic thing where private actors can be forced to give a equal soapbox to people to speak. And the phrase, as I use it, tends to be conservatives for Pruneyard. But to be fair, there are people on the left who suddenly um, seem to have strong opinions about the uh, property rights of private corporations. Uh, so everybody is flipped. And then there's the whole Elon Musk thing, potentially buying Twitter, which is uh, creating yet more twists and turns. You know, the, the old proverb, may you live in exciting times as a curse. Uh, we are in it. Um, I will note uh, along those lines, Mark Joseph Stern had a good line in Slate after Alito issued his dissent saying, it is now evident that the most reactionary justices have adopted the Republican Party's baseless paranoia about big tech censoring conservatives and adjusted their jurisprudence accordingly. And I think that's a good summation of Alito's uh, short opinion. Yeah, I will say, though, that Judge Newsom's opinion seemed suspiciously aimed at Justice Kavanaugh. Um, he cited a lot of Kavanaugh opinions. Uh, it, it seemed to basically be writing for him as a potential swing vote. Well, let me put it to you. Uh, then, because now it's time for us to look ahead. Um, we are awaiting the Fifth Circuit's decision. As I said, uh, I, I, in my hope of hopes, you know, maybe they'll reverse position and that's ridiculous. They're not going to. They're going to issue some decision uh, upholding HB 20 and we'll get that. And then we'll have a square split. We'll have the Fifth Circuit going one way. Well, they have, they have the 11th going another. But meanwhile, we're going to get cross petitions to the Supreme Court by the 11th Circuit. So Florida is going to challenge Newsom's uh, content moderation portions. The platforms are going to uh, challenge his portions of his opinion upholding the disclosure requirements. So a lot's going to head to the uh, Supreme Court. They're going to have a lot of uh, a buffet of options for how to review this case. Um, Ari, what do you, how do you think this is going to play out? You know, what are your, uh, look into your crystal ball for us. Well, if, if we're operating on the assumption that Florida will cross petition uh, instead of waiting for the fifth circuit and, and seeing what happens there. Um, oh, they will. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's likely you are correct about that. Um, I am not sure the Supreme court doesn't look at this and say, we're getting this in the next you know, year or two anyways. We're going to have to make this decision. We might as well just suck it up and do it now. Um, 
would not surprise me to see that one bit. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting alignment of justices whenever they do decide it. Uh, I would predict Robert's side platforms. We know Clarence Thomas is going to be on the other side. Uh, I think, but maybe not, Kagan probably sides with the platforms. I think if Kavanaugh is intellectually consistent with his previous opinions, he kind of has to. Uh, I, there's a real there's a real possibility that Gorsuch joins the Florida side, uh, and we know Alito probably will too. Uh, and I don't have no earthly idea what Barrett or Sotomayor will do. Um, it is eminently up for grabs, in my opinion, and I think that this is going to be one of those Supreme Court cases where the trading of opinions and coalition building probably happens to an extreme extent. Uh, this is all going to come down to the details of exactly how broad or narrow the holding is. And frankly, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe on the first go around with the 11th Circuit, there's a little bit of a punt and they do a, a just a really narrow ruling. I think that would be unwise because this is going to come back up and they probably just need to get it over with one way or the other and rip the Band-Aid off. Uh, but they've been known to, to do those t- really narrow opinions that effectively punt. So, you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen. This is all nuts. Yeah, yeah. Well, a few things that I see preliminarily. So, for first of all, I, I think Justice Kavanaugh has been a path setter in certain areas of First Amendment jurisprudence that leave him sort of hamstrung. I mean, I, he, I just cannot see him ruling for the states here without uh, reversing so much of what he's done in the very recent past that I mean, anything's possible, of course, but I, I, I think Kavanaugh's a solid vote um, for the sort of Newsom-esque position on the must-carry stuff. Something we've seen from both uh, Breyer and Justice Kagan, the uh, liberal justices have pushed back on this notion that uh, the First Amendment free speech clause should apply sort of um, tout court across all different kinds of speech. They've, they've tried to make the case that it should be more focused where speech really matters in their mind, you know, political debate and stuff like that. Uh, so, for instance, Justice Breyer pushed back on a vigorous application of the free speech clause in the context of um, like spammy text messages. And so you could see them um, seeing this agglomeration of corporate power across platforms if they if they view the platforms in that way. Um, thinking maybe that that it is okay to regulate social media speech. That said, I, you know, I can't see them having much sympathy for Florida's and Texas's laws, their specific way that they've gone about doing this. Um, so I could see them wanting to craft something that leaves the door open to something in the future. And then also these laws have many provisions. So I could see them wanting to create some kind of compromise where, okay, you know, HB 20's viewpoint neutrality requirement is egregious and would just break social media. But can we find some provision uh, within the Florida law 
or the Texas law take, I don't know, Florida's um, don't change your rules more than every 30 days or whatever. Um, and, and use that as a launching point for making a case that this kind of stuff can be permissible if it's done carefully. So I agree with you. Who knows what's going to happen? I think uh, it's pretty wide open. Like Judge uh, Justice Gorsuch joining Alito and Thomas in that dissent, I personally found very surprising and was another harbinger uh, that, you know, this it, it remains to be seen what will happen when these uh, cases head to the Supreme Court, as it seems almost inevitable they will. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there's there's some consternation uh, among the liberal judges uh, with the, quote, uh, Lochnerization of the First Amendment. So, you know, if if I had to put money on something, I would put money on saving provisions like disclosure requirements and stuff like that, that I think are going to be maybe a little bit more palatable and, and maybe send a little bit of a signal to address concerns of people that the First Amendment can just be used to prevent regulation of businesses uh, at large. Um, you know, and, you know, I personally, I'll lochnerize everything, but, um, you know, the, I think that's, that's a, a concern uh, about some of these uh, types of laws that, that might get slid in there. Well, one thing that certainly makes me uncomfortable when I listen to the uh, sort of I'll call it the liberal law professoriate, is there's, there seems to be this urge, I won't name names on this particular one, um, of, okay, well, we all know that Florida and Texas are acting, like if we just label what they're doing bad faith, okay, how do we, how do we thread the needle? How do we make it so that, well we, well, we know they shouldn't get to regulate social media, but how, you know, we'll make it so that they can't, well, craft a ruling somehow that says what they're doing is wrong, but, the, but oh, we were acting in good faith. We're on the side of the angels. So our social media regulation, when we get around to doing it, it should be okay. And that just seems like a very dangerous game to me. And I think the current comp composition of the court is going to preclude any game playing like that. You're not going to get Roberts and Kavanaugh, especially to sign on to an opinion that leaves the door open to machinations by you know, the political opponents of Florida and, and Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there seems to be a lack of awareness that the Supreme Court is not currently, um, the, the winds aren't blowing in that direction for that kind of game playing. Well, thank you, Ari. This has been great fun. Um, <laughs> my power actually went out uh, much of the way through this recording and Ari's had issues and I've had issues. We've, we've, we've uh, soldiered on through many challenges to get this episode done. Um, let's turn to uh, shamelessly plugging Tech Freedom's work. This episode seems fit for it because we do a lot of work in this area. Um, I've already been plugging us in the middle of the episode. We're going to do a little more at the moment. Uh, we have filed briefs at all stages of this litigation. Um, not only did Judge Newsom cite us in the 11th Circuit opinion, as I've noted, uh, but the Fifth Circuit oral argument, we came up. Uh, counsel cited our brief toward uh, Judge Oldham, who mentioned that he'd read our brief several times. So hopefully, in his opinion, he'll uh, say why we're wrong or rip on us, uh, because any publicity is good publicity in that regard. Uh, we filed a brief at the Supreme Court in support of the emergency application that we've discussed, talking about uh, basically just 
if you let HB 20 go into effect, we, we got into the real concrete, you know, what kind of speech does that allow? You know, the, the shooter, the mass shooter manifestos and the pro-anorexia content and the animal cruelty videos and all that. It was a kind of gruesome uh, brief. Um, if the uh, platforms challenged Judge Newsom's disclosure requirement rulings, uh, you know, you can look for us to have a brief up there. Uh, no guarantees, but I, I expect we'll be participating in some way in that regard if that cert petition goes up. Uh, and we've also written more articles on these topics than you can poke a stick at. Um, I will include a few of them, a handful of them in the show notes. Uh, for one thing, check out my recent piece at The Bulwark. It's called Trumpism on the Bench. And it is a meditation on whether the Fifth Circuit's extreme actions in this case are a harbinger of a new sort of like Trumpist style of uh, legal, legal action, ju judicial action. Um, so we've been doing lots of stuff in here, which is a nice segue into saying uh, we are a nonprofit organization. Uh, I always encourage you go to techfreedom.org and donate if you like the work we're doing. Um, and claim that sweet tax write-off. There you go. Um, Ari? Anything more from you? I think that pretty much covers it. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Um, always, always so fun to talk to you, everyone. Um, glad to be back. I should give a shout out to Josh, our producer, uh, Josh Evans. He uh, just got married and was out on his honeymoon. That's part of why we had a, a bit of a break here. I hope he's okay with me mentioning that. Um, so congratulations to him and thank you to him for all the good work he does on this show. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.